Welcome to the next session on the history of cadaveric dissection and anatomy. This area is revolutionising dissection from Galen through the medievalists to Vesalius. I'd like to start with a quote from John Donne, 1572 to 1631, from his Ecstasy. To our bodies turn within, that so weak men on love revealed may look. Love's mysteries in souls do grow, but yet the body is his book. And that's a little bit about what I want to talk about, that link between uh, the art of anatomy and reading the anatomy of the body, which is even extended to a digital reading, a sort of liber corporum. Peter Poor, who was a um, student of uh, Vesalius, 1564 to 1617, also the prelector Anatomiae in uh, Leiden, wrote that I judged that God himself intended greater and more certain endurance of his wisdom, power and goodness to appear in the formation of the human body than elsewhere. Two characters in particular dominate anatomy <coughs> and its direction before the 18th century, Galen of Pergamon and Andreas Vesalius, both of whom we've already briefly met. The first one of the fathers of anatomy is a shadowy figure whose writings come only through translations and often translations of translations and who vivisecting animals largely inferred from their dissections a comparative human anatomy. Regardless of whether it was philosophy, cosmology or anatomy, the tenets of the ancients were adopted for a Renaissance world, and the intricacies and complexity of Galen's taxonomy of the human body was co-opted by theologians who were interested in the organisation of man within a defined universal space. Galenic dogma became theological dogma, both handed out to interested parties in a kind of biblical tradition of storytelling and textual authority. But anatomy fundamentally differs, of course, from theology with its faith-based precepts that some might cogently argue have no clear boundaries and whose doctrines can neither be confirmed nor refuted. When Vesalius came to Paris in 1532, his intentions were entirely honourable, and like any good student of divinity, his goal was to dissect the human body and write a modern-day anatomy textbook sanctifying the prevailing Galenic wisdom. The sheer number, however, of places in the body where his own personal dissections were discordant from those reported by Galen was so great that his findings brought him into conflict with others who may have professed to dissect or else who had already rationalised their dissections with an inflexible text. There were many examples where anatomists before Vesalius, and even Vesalius himself, who without some more holistic appreciation of the organ assembly within the human body, or an understanding of its workable systems, at some point in their dissections were forced, if they were Galenists, to disbelieve their own eyes. But Vesalius did two things which changed anatomy and which mark and personify him with a modern anatomical movement. Firstly, in dissecting the human body himself, and in particular in doing so as a pedagogic enterprise in front of others, 
He changed anatomy from a discipline dependent upon textual or personal conviction to one which was reliant upon the consensus induced by the simple powers of observation. And secondly, to reinforce this sense of the visual collective experience, he produced his anatomy text, The Fabrica Humani Corporis, in collaboration with a fine artist, in order to ensure that these points of truth could, through the wit written word and the permanency of the printing press, be indelibly communicated, disseminated and remembered. Anatomy, whose physical constraint was the rapid dissection of a rotting corpse, was no longer, at least in one aspect, racing against time. The anatomists, like their compatriot explorers, both produced their atlases of discovery, and even if the fabrica was the product of the many dissections Vesalius had performed to get to this point, there was now a precise visual record that was symbolic of all of these prior events. <coughs> the scene for convulsive change in anatomy having been set, there's justification in drawing a line in the sand that marks him, Vesalius, as the foremost anatomist of his age, and using him as the watershed to artificially distinguish those who came before him, the pre-Vesalians, from those who followed after, the post-Vesalians. And it's a manner in which history never regards Galen. We don't think of pre- and post-Galenists. Between the Alexandrian anatomical world of Herophilus and Erasistratus, neither of whom have left any trace, and the Roman age, stands only the figure of Galen of Pergamon, and between him and the Renaissance, a millennium and a half later, is only the rather obscure medieval anatomist Mundinus. <coughs> there are, of course, many, many more who took up the scalpel and dissected the human body, but the periods of time are demarcated by our rather artificial iconography, by discrete men and their description of dissection method. Galenic ideology dominates the anatomic world for the next 1,400 years, even though there's no real evidence that he ever dissected a human cadaver. Galen might reasonably be considered the first comparative anatomist, preferring to infer the structure of human anatomy from his vivisection of frogs, monkeys, pigs, dogs, and his favourite, the Barbary ape, the Macaca Silvianus. But in spite of these limitations, his writings became so firmly entrenched within the minds of medieval and Renaissance anatomists that when they were finally questioned in the middle of the 16th century, such deviation was considered by many to be heretical. As for the life of Elias or Claudius Galenus, we know very little. His corpus of writing extended well beyond anatomy into philosophy and logic, as was the habit of many Greek scholars, his eclectic interests a legacy of the benevolent disposition of his father. After preliminary study in Alexandria, he became the emperor's personal physician, that's Marcus Aurelius, and what was called primum sane medicorum esse philosophorum autum solum, the first among doctors and unique among philosophers. But despite his position, his experience of cadavers was minimal. Following the death of Marcus Aurelius, Galen became devoted to Emperor Commodus, 161 to 192 AD, and he would have witnessed firsthand the ravages of the Antonine Plague of 166 AD that claimed nearly 2,000 people 
in Rome a day. But there was, despite his lack of human dissection, much that he did accurately contribute, defining the structure of the larynx and its complex nerve supply, and realising that it was the source of the voice. His book, The De Nervorum, on the nerves, cleverly separated the large sensory nerves, bringing all manner of sensation of cold and heat and pain sensitivity to the brain from those motor nerves which supplied the stimulatory basis of the movement of all muscles. His De Motum Musculorum on the muscular movement posited with almost mathematical precision those groups of muscles which acted in synergy and are differentiated from those from uh, those which were antagonistic to various particular actions. The classification actually formed the basis of a kind of neuromuscular design of the body. And his De Venarum Arteriarumque on the veins and arteries delineated the basic bodily blood vessels and was a forerunner to an understanding, at least, of the circulatory system. The uh, Galenic works that came down to us probably only represented one-third of his complete writings, as much was lost in a fire in the Temple of Peace in AD 192. Even then they're so prolific that they make up 10% of all ancient Greek writings and half of the available Greek literature on medicine. They were collated by some 20 scribes, totalling over 3 million words, in more than 100 treatises on all subjects ranging from physical hygiene to semiotics, bloodletting, which he introduced into Rome, and logic. Today, Galen is almost defined, however, as much by what he got wrong as by dint of discovery and exactitude. Even the successors of anatomy's great protagonists, William Harvey, 1578-1657, and Vesalius himself, are in some measure judged by how they were able to refute traditional Galenic thought and more than this by how they explained the anatomy of the heart and the movement of the blood. Like Erasistratus, Galen was able to differentiate the pulsating arteries with their thicker walls from the soft to thin-walled veins filled to capacity with blood, but he couldn't understand how the smaller arteries and veins were connected. The primitive Galenic view of a hierarchy of bodily spirits generally held sway until the earliest physiological experiments in the mid-19th century provided a functional and a chemical separation of visceral activity. Until then, there were Galen's natural spirits, which in the liver, for him, formed the blood from the products of digestion, the vital spirit which was supplemented by the air or pneuma filtered by the heart, and the animal spirit which was contained within the brain. This separatist view of the body left no room for the integrative concept of organs and systems working together, and had forced a further separation of the heart into a right side which was preoccupied with bringing blood back from the periphery to the upper chambers, and a left side which then distributed vitalised blood outwards. There was no effective connection between each. Galen really had no appreciation that there might be a circulation, and he proposed that both systems were entirely separate and filled with blood which kind of simply ebbed and flowed back and forth without any connection. The Galenic notion necessitated that all of the blood pooling in the peripheral tissues would then be consumed, only to be immediately reformed by the liver. And for the Galenists, the vital spirit, 
the pneuma, distributed through the great channel of the aorta, could only receive its vitality if somehow the blood could travel from the right to the left ventricle across its thickened septum and through a filter of tiny pores. And that blood, Galen surmised, would kind of sweat across from the right side to the from the right ventricle to the left ventricle through apertures that he contended existed, but which he said were invisible. And despite intensive dissections of the heart, no such pores could ever be found. And much had been made of this theory, but really his failure to recognise an anatomical circulation was also compounded by a lack of understanding of how the movement of the blood was connected to the rhythmic contractions of the heart. For all of the power of his written word, it's almost inconceivable how Galen held much sway in the face of observably discordant findings whenever anyone opened the body. He did actually appreciate that there was something wrong with this theory, since the pulmonary artery coming from the right ventricle carried blood without a vital spirit on its way to the lungs and yet looked like any other large artery, what he called a vena arteriosa. And by contrast, the pulmonary veins leaving the lungs and carrying vitalised what we know now as oxygenated blood back to the left atrium looked like any large veins, what he called the arteria venosi. So he understood that there was something wrong with his theory. Harvey had also dispelled Galen's theory since he'd measured the cubic capacity of the left ventricle and he calculated that the amount of blood that would be passing through it in a half hour would exceed the total volume of the blood in the body if it was continuously being lost in the periphery and it implied obviously that there was a conservation of blood resultant from a recirculation and not as Galen had said a sort of constant renewal of blood. So the idea that when Harvey essentially debunked uh, Galen on the circulation, that was really the death blow to Galenism. Galen's preeminence flying in the face of facts occurred, however, I think, for several reasons. Vesalius was initially so convinced of Galen's system of the blood that when he couldn't find the pores in the septum of the muscle between the ventricles, which he was certain must be there, he still wrote of their existence in his fabricum. His teacher, Silvius, also taught that if there was a discrepancy between the cadaver and Galen, then Galen should be believed, rather than the senses, and that, as Silvius said, quote-unquote, the body itself was wrong. He wrote so in his Ordo et Ratio Ordinus Legendus Hippocrates et Galenae. Uh, he claimed Galen's anatomy to be, quote, infallible, or Galen's words, to be divine. For these true believers, rationalisation of the differences between the written word and dissections could have been possible um, if there had been inaccuracies in the translation of the Galenic texts, and also perhaps it might be a consequence of the effects of time on the structure of the body. Put simply, man, since Galen had described him, had perhaps through an inherent impiety become both morally and physically debased. Even, of course, if this were true, it still bothered theologians as to why God would have constructed such a perfect image initially, only to permit it to become so corrupted. Recognising Vesalius as a better dissector than he, Vesalius' teacher, Gunther of Andernach, the German, had invited Vesalius to annotate the dissection of the corpse in order to write a local version, a Parisian version, 
of Galen with an expectation that all of the ancient dogma would be confirmed by Vesalius's dissection. And instead for Vesalius, who embarked upon this project out of Galenic respect and passion, his first discovery was that Galen may never have actually dissected a human corpse at all, as I've said. He writes of it with shock and disbelief. And then next he picks apart Galen's famed anatomical procedures, describing the book as a paradox for extolling the virtues of dissecting for oneself, but then recounting findings as fact that no Roman could have ever possibly witnessed. On the one hand, Galen opens the thorax of a live pig, he cuts the large recurrent laryngeal nerve which courses down from the neck and snakes around the back of the aorta on its way upwards again to the larynx, so that he can amaze his audience with the sudden cessation of the animal's tortured squealing. In another, he dissects the prominent cranial nerves as they leave the front excrescences of the brain stem to make their way to the orbit. These things by Galen were accurate products uh, of a best recommended apprenticeship, which Galen felt was the preliminary dissection of an ape. The Galenic texts passed to Italy as Arabic and Syriac translations, which were made at about the start of the 9th century by the Nestorian Christian Hunan ibn Ishaq, 809-873 AD, and even included one text entitled On Disagreements Regarding Dissection. In it, Galen implores his students to practice anatomy on apes on the off chance that one day they may be presented with an injured human being. Without this knowledge of the ape, Galen felt that human dissection would be a waste of time, and he recounts a case of a German soldier who was dissected during the Antonine Wars where nothing could be discerned except perhaps the crudest appreciation of the location of the intestines. He provides opportunities to observe the internal anatomy of men in the book writing of those executed for crimes whose bodies were thrown away, but which could be observed in different stages of composition. Further experience could be felt he gained from the dissection of aborted foetuses and of the observation of any great wounds or festering ulcers that might have exposed some of the inner organs uh, after, for example, gladiatorial conquests. But even with these prescriptions, there were far too many inaccuracies in Galen and by the time Vesalius was finished, there was a practical basis for discarding much of Galen's ideas altogether. Early on, however, it was a precarious position, the powers that be, regarding any anti-Galen criticism as heresy. But in practice, what would kill off Galenism was not so much the sheer number of discordant observations in the cadaver that Galen could not account for, but the emergence of a scientific method from a medieval slumber. The Galenic coup de grace discreetly came with simple experimentation, as I've said before, that debunked Galen's notion of the formation and the movement of the blood. After Galen, for over a millennium, anatomy remained static until a small focus coalesced around one little-known Bolognese man, Mondino de Liuzzi, or Mondinus, as we already met. He was the first known to introduce a formal method of human dissection since Alexandrian times, and the first to combine those dissections with a record of illustration. Actually, after the decline of the Alexandrian school in 200 AD, 
the first human dissection, which was actually of an executed woman, was performed by Mandinus in Bologna in 1315. That ritual of public anatomization set up a sort of style of Italian dissection for the next 300 years. Mandinus's Anatomia Corporis Humani, which was written in 1316, was the first ever dissection manual, and it became the most popular anatomy text in Europe for around about the next 250 years. What made it radical, however, was not so much its content, but its method, even if his annotation appeared to have largely been borrowed from an Arabist commentary on Hippocrates, Aristotle and Galen. The writing in Mandinus's Anatomia is in both Latin and Arabic, and in it he defines the categorisation of anatomical teaching into its distinct regions, perhaps for the first time, formally elaborating on the texture and the size and the shape of individual organs and of their architectural relationships to other vital structures. The method Mundinus devised was the original manner of dissection handed down to our own teaching of anatomy, beginning with what he labelled as the inferior ventricle, which was the abdomen, and including the organs thought to be what he called the most confused and the least noble. Mandinus also actually described the uterus as having seven magical compartments for fetal growth, three places for a male fetus, three for a female fetus, and one for a mixed hermaphrodite. And that anatomical fantasy was repeated by Leonardo da Vinci, who is thought to have possessed a copy of Mandinus's Anatomia in da Vinci's most iconic images of that fetus inside a pregnant uterus. Mandinus also divided the ventricles of the brain into a first part or a front part, which was the seat of fantasy, a middle section which received and processed the sense information, the so-called sensor comune, and a hind section, which housed the imagination and the memory. Despite the looming presence of Mundinus, there was, apart from the Arab physicians, mostly a blank canvas in the time period between the fall of the Western Roman Empire and that of Constantinople in 1453. In anatomy, philosophy, art and science, that bridge between Greco-Roman imperialism and the modern era which was its middle age, its media etus, is dominated not by any great understanding of the physical world, but rather by a pervasive asceticism which emanated from a few influential religious scholars whose metaphorical presence towered over ordinary lives. The physical harshness of existence during these times saw an average life expectancy of only 30 years, and the history of this period is not one of intellectual or medieval enlightenment, but rather of the decimation of populations and the legacy of the morbid great epidemics. There were in this particular period, the Middle Ages, three major European medieval epidemics. There was malaria between the 3rd and the 5th centuries, the plague between the 6th and the 8th centuries, and the Black Death, which started in the 14th century and extended up to uh, and included the 17th century. Out of this environment, Mundinus emerged to establish a <coughs> style of dissecting and teaching, which only Vesalius was to challenge 250 years on. The legacy of Mundinus' method, its per pervasive enunciation 
of what an anatomy school should actually look like. <coughs> In it is the central place, actually, of the professor, the lector, sitting and reading from a textbook like a sedentary preacher in a pulpit, ex-cathedra. He does not soil his hands with dissection, which is the pragmatic task of the demonstrator, usually a surgeon, whose work is then indicated with a pointer by a third man, the ostensor, a person of limited training, but whose task was to reinforce the words of the lector with verbatim repetition. Anatomy was reading out the known canonical texts, and then that was the way it was taught. Mundinus's own funerary plaque, along with that of his father, can actually be found in the portico outside Bologna's church, uh, San Vitale e Agricola, showing him precisely in position mid-lecture in the anatomy class he had invented. The formal style of dissection helped centralise the place of the professor and subordinate the corpse to the inherent power of the textual word. Although far less spectacular than the anatomizations that would be made in the Renaissance period, dissections between 1300 and 1500 established an Italian method for which Mundinus had set the stage. And between these periods, however, the drama of dissection and its illustration were advanced by a group of anatomist surgeons who announced their towns of origin and which included Henri de Montville, Guy de Choliac, who was a student of Mundinus, Theodoric Borgognoni, Guglielmo de Saliceto, Ugo Borgognoni di Luca, Lanfranchi of Milan, and Theodoric of Cervia. These were people who were defined by the name of their towns. The rival Italian University of Padua began to diversify as the physicians organised themselves into their associations, their fralia, which established their earliest professorships of anatomy under Bruno da Longobucco, 1200-1286, and Pietro da Bano, 1250-1315. Da Bano, for example, was an acquaintance of both Marco Polo and the artist Giotto, and probably the first person to conduct a formal autopsy in Italy. He was later accused of heresy by the Spanish Inquisition, but died in prison before trial. And there were other medieval professors of anatomy at the Paduan school, which included Galeazzo Santa Sofia, the first to conduct a public dissection in Vienna in 1404, Niccolò de Monselice, Leonardo Buffi di Bertipaglia. From 1392 onwards, specific chairs of anatomy and surgery were created at Padua, but they weren't actually separated until around about 1609. I think that before we meet Vesalius and his predecessors, we should interpose also the Arabic men of medicine, who, after the Muslim capture of Alexandria in AD 642, have largely been forgotten. In Western anatomy teaching, not only is this period generally ignored, but so are its medieval men, most of whom dominated an Arabic world, but whose works are not really part of the canon of anatomy. There are several reasons for this admission. In many anatomical writings, there was a literal war between Arabist progenitors and Western idealists, the latter skewing the history of anatomy and surgery towards the likes of Lanfranc, de Montville, de Choliac and de Luzzi, and away from the Islamic pantheon that included Avicenna, Al-Bukassus and Averroes. Some, like Vesalius, 
recognised both streams, that's the Latinate stream and the Arabic stream, as compatible and complementary, including in parts of his fabrica not only Arabic anatomic terminology, but even its calligraphy. The second reason why there wasn't much of an Arabic tradition of anatomy, at least taught, is that the Qur'an neither endorses nor sanctions dissection, and there was only a limited tradition of the Arab anatomy schools to match those that were being established in the 13th and 14th centuries as part of the earliest universities of Montpellier, Bologna and Padua, for example. Moreover, in Islam there was no illustrative tradition, no movement resembling also that of Christian scholasticism that might have supported an Arabic culture of anatomy and dissection in the way we've seen it emerge in the West. There was no comparative Islamist custom where influential scholastic writers could reconcile their particular theology with the proto-scientific discourse of some philosophical class in the same way that St. Augustine and St. Jerome had attempted to absorb Plato's ethics or Aristotle's metaphysics or Ptolemy's cosmology into a kind of juvenile or fledgling Catholic doctrine. Many of the texts produced during the Islamic Golden Age, which was somewhat artificially drawn from the 8th to the 13th centuries, were also highly critical of Galen, limiting their initial dissemination. So even if all that united them, uh, the the, uh, Islamists, was a common faith, it's unrealistic to expect a monolithic Islamic catalogue, the product of physicians who came from a disparate world embracing at one end the Iberian Peninsula, northern Africa and southern Arabia, and at the other the Caspian Sea and the Indus Valley. But every faculty is represented by its Arabic counterpart, and every section of a Western curriculum has its Arab equivalent that includes those names appearing in our anatomy texts as alternative attachments to many hidden structures. Razas, Ibn Abbas, 930-994, Avicenna, Averroes, Ibn al-Haytham, al-Hazen, 965-1040, al-Baghdadi, 1162-1231, and Ibn An-Nafis, 1210-1288, they'd all produced their great compendia of medicine, such as the Kitab al-Mansuri, the books of optics and the pharmacopoeias of medicines handed down from the holy book and the life of the prophet. Any analysis of such works leads to an historical revisionism, showing the Arabs as the discoverers of the nerves of phonation or of the disposition of the blood supply to the brain, hundreds of years before it was attributed to Western anatomists. The anthology of doctors written by Ibn Abi Usaybiya contains information concerning Arab medicine and its physicians, for example, and some of that history has been lost when the Tartars invaded Baghdad in the 13th century and destroyed part of its library, as well as with the Christian destruction of the Arabic library of Cordoba in Spain, which was reputed to have contained 600,000 volumes. So there are many reasons why there is a poor or limited understanding of the Arabic influence on anatomy. But it took William Harvey to introduce the idea that the physical structure of the body could be understood by a new experimental methodology when he proved the mechanism of the circulatory system, as I mentioned, 
by cutting the aorta of a live dog and showering the front row of a Pudwin lecture theatre with its pulsating arterial blood. Even though Harvey is credited with the discovery of the circulation and through his practical demonstrations with tourniquets and bloodletting is arguably the one who placed a defining nail in the Galenic coffin, there seems ample evidence to suggest that the notion of the circulatory system was actually an Islamic invention. Many have speculated that Leonardo da Vinci, for example, was only marginally away from this ultimate discovery, his drawing showing the complexity of the chambers of the heart and the inverted table leg appearance of the papillary muscles that hold taut the leaflets of the valves and which anchor them to the framework of the heart like the halyard of a ship's mainsail. In all of this, Leonardo was accurate, but without the epiphany that real experimentation might have produced. The Arabic texts are full of the circulatory anatomy which drew its blood from the right ventricle through to the pulmonary artery and thence to the lungs, and where afterwards the rich vitalised blood could return from its pulmonary encounter to the left side of the heart for distribution to the rest of the body. Regardless of who one believes was the real discoverer of the circulation, the only leap of faith required for such a schema is that there must of necessity be the minutest connections between the most distal arteries and their tiniest formative veins, and through these channels a way in which the vital spirit, carried by the lungs in the air, could enrich the blood. The proposal of these minute structures that were not currently visible, which we know now as the capillaries, was a specific prediction that was clearly enunciated, it would seem, by the Arab Ibn al-Nafis more than 300 years before William Harvey, even if this discovery comes to us via a somewhat circuitous route. It's now, however, an accepted wisdom after the historian Max Meyerhoff, 1874-1945, was handed a 1924 obscure thesis on the life and work of Ibn al-Nafis written by an Egyptian physician, Mui ad-Din ad-Tatawi. Students of Vesalius, both Raaldo Colombo and Michael Servetus, 1551-1553, most likely plagiarising the work of Ibn al-Nafis, had independently postulated these capillaries well before Harvey and long before any possibility of such structures ever having been visualised. It wasn't until 1661 that the pathologist anatomist Marcello Marpighi, 1628-1694, could train the newly invented microscope onto a frog's lung and draw for the first time the capillaries that until then had only been in the imagination of a few men. I think uh, I said that um, firstly only three copies of the Al-Tatawi thesis were ever published Meyerhoff's analysis of the document at Freiburg University reported that Ibn al-Nafis first described a circulatory system with the postulate of pulmonary capillaries acting as a network for vitalisation of blood in the lungs in the 13th century. The prediction of the capillary, sight unseen, I think, could be equated in its broadest sense with Einstein's prediction of a black hole, and here the postulated manners are similar where the idea of the presence of an as yet undiscovered structure or system before the availability of technology capable of proving its existence would be suggested as a logical extension of a thought process, or as in Einstein's case, 
mathematically dictated. Marpigi himself was in several disputes over the ownership of discoveries, not just the frog capillaries, but he wrote of the pulmonary capillaries in two epistles, the so-called De Pulmonibus, and sending these as letters to his friend Giovanni Borelli in 1661. Despite the inescapable new science, there were certainly critics who regarded Harvey's notions as preposterous and whose strategy in their public attacks was to lambaste not only Harvey the scientist, but also Harvey the man. In the face of such criticism, however, his relentless public vivisections and forceful presentations of human anatomizations, which described the workings of human physiology, did much not only to promote his private practice and international reputation, but also to advance the scientific contributions of the schools of anatomy, and to spread the practice of autopsy throughout Europe. Harvey told the columnist John Aubrey that, quote, "'Twas believed by the vulgar that he was a crack-brained man, and all the physicians were against his opinion, unquote. He was, however, able to surround himself with a very talented group of dissectors, which included Francis Glisson, Nathaniel Highmore, Thomas Wharton, Thomas Willis, each of whom advanced the study of anatomy through dissection. The Dutch-born physician Gideon Harvey, 1640-1700, no relation to William, was actually scathing in his attacks on Harvey, suggesting no social benefit from hundreds of years of cadaveric dissection, which he likened in his 1683 the conclave of physicians detecting their intrigues, frauds and plots against their patients, the name of his book, to the practice of cannibalism, uh, uh, an interesting book by John Aubrey. Harvey's place in the history of science is, I think, surely emblematic with his description of the circulation of the blood. But the transformative subtext of his contribution to the evolution of science, which is his real legacy, was the description of an experimental method. The trajectory of science from then on was as an unchallenged arbiter of truth, a position which to a considerable extent derives from that artificial instant of Harvey's revelation of the mechanics of the circulation. And the next section in this history of medicine is about the birth of science and the development of anatomy as a discipline of science. The good fortune of such change was of considerable moment with the imposition of the ways and means of scientific method onto the subject of anatomy. It represented a more modern era where harsh retribution for holding alternative views concerning the anatomy of the human body could be a phenomenon of the past. <coughs> it should be remembered that on the continent just 70 years before Harvey's demonstration, any advocacy of an anti-Galenic circulatory system could unleash a very serious response by the Church. Michael Servetus, for example, born in Navarre, Spain, as Miguel Serveto, and through life known either as Villano Vanus or in France as Serretus, in describing the small channels between the arteries and veins in the substance of the lung, what he called his capillaribus, made the mistake of including the theory or uh, in his 1553 book, the Christianismi Restitutio, alongside a range of heresies which attacked the divinity of Christ, the Holy Trinity, 
and the power of baptism. So in fairness, there was quite a lot of blasphemy in the book itself. But it incurred the personal wrath of John Calvin, um, 1509 to 1564, the head of the Reformed Church in Geneva, who had Servetus arrested and tried, and on the 27th of October, 1553, burned at the stake. Now, except that it's naive to suggest that this tragic end was somehow a direct result of the discovery of the lesser pulmonary circulation, since Servetus actually repeatedly taunted Calvin, sending him epistles which contained in their marginalia a series of rather crudely obscene remarks. Nevertheless, Servetus was committed to the flames on the edge of the city at the Plateau de Champelle with a copy of his Restitutio and a few of his other manuscripts chained to each arm. It's nice uh, uh, to think that it's been suggested that Calvin personally ordered the executioners to use young saplings of greenwood in the burning of the stake so that it might prolong the time Servetus would be burned, which is pretty horrible but amazing sort of thing. It is perhaps arcane to consider the 50 years or so before Vesalius quite so intellectually barren as any part of the Middle Ages. The printing press had only appeared 50 years before that, and there was an explosion of independent presses, which over this time had increased the number of books produced in Europe by 300%. The rediscovered Greek and Latin texts had all been translated into the local vernacular, even if they'd first gone through a round of Arabic translation. In this environment, however, Vesalius was as much an innovative product of his age as he was limited by it, and there were many anatomists in the half-century before 1543, when his fabrica appeared, who were less well-known but who were influential. That period may not have been the acme of anatomical inquiry, but it was a time when the known world was being expanded by intrepid navigators and when art was transforming into high art. Vasco da Gama had just reached India, Columbus, the Americas, and Leonardo, Michelangelo, Botticelli, Raphael and Giorgione were all active. Anatomy may not have had its great champions, but en passant, art was flourishing under the papacies of Alexander VI, Julius II, Pope Leo X and Clement VII. The most prominent of the pre-Vesalians, like Gabriele Cerbi, 1485, to 1569, and Jacopo Berengario de Carpi, 1470-1530, had their own cadre of followers, like groupies, who fought in open debates over the anatomic principles of their respective master. Most had an intimate knowledge of both the Hellenic and Arab influences, but much of this had the underlying aim of promotion of a Western anatomic tradition. De Carpi, for example, in his 1521 Commentari, and in his short introduction to anatomy, the Isagoge Brevis, combines an enormous compendium of Mundinus's anatomia with his, that is, De Carpi's, personal medical practice. One ambition was certainly the endorsement of the Mundinus method, but the other aim was undoubtedly self-promotion, De Carpi littering his work with obscure but largely successful surgical cases. The other aim of the book was to use it as a platform to denigrate his opponent Cerbi and his disciples, the Cerbiste. 
Berengaria actually hated Zerbi and spread the rumour that Zerbi's children had been hanged for stealing and that Zerbi himself had committed suicide with the shame, all completely false. Zerbi's end, however, was particularly gruesome. After being sent by the Venetian consul Andrea Gritti, who later became the Doge of Venice from 1523 to 1538, he sent him to attend to the Skander Pasha, who'd been taken ill in Bosnia. And Zerbi took one of his sons along, but was unable to cure the Pasha, who initially got better, but then who died of a severe dysentery. And uh, the troops were sent out to catch up with both Zerbi and his son, and uh, they were both killed, uh, according to legend, by placing them between two wooden planks and sawing them in half. Actually, uh, Zerbi's son was done before him so that he could watch his son being uh, split in two as a retribution. De Carpi was unquestionably one of the first to include illustrations in his texts with his attachment of rather sophisticated line drawings, principally of the muscles. His cadavers on display typically lift up the skin of their abdomens as sort of willing participants in their own dissections. The images of his French contemporary Charles Estienne, 1504-1564, on the other hand, are eclectic and likely the product of many artists, each with a different style. In the first volume of Estienne's De Dissectione Partium Corporis Humani, in three volumes, he sends his notations of what each structure is called out of the woodcut, like a pinwheel, and he plants the blood vessels or the nerves directly on top of the skeletal framework in a manner that would not have had much clinical utility for the surgeons. The images are spectacular, but they're impractical. By his second edition, the style becomes more dimensional, for the first time cross-sectioning parts of the body and leaving out the distracting markers, but substituting them with panels of seminal information or with small diagrammatic inserts. Estienne fills the space with as much information as possible, but all this activity tends to do is to draw the attention away from the image. His artist was most likely the engraver Geoffrey Troy, 1480-1533, and he can't seem, however, like Vesalius to resist including these tortured pieces in idyllic Baroque landscapes. For SDM, the arguments over production were, however, completely disabling. He began his magnum opus in 1539, uh, but there were so many quarrels with his publisher and the anatomist Etienne de la Rubière that publication was held up for six years. In fact, without that dispute, it's interesting to speculate on how history would have come to view Vesalius if Estienne had been able to publish before him, which was most likely. As it was, a Parisian court ruling forced Charles Estienne to include De La Riviere as a co-author, and he was beaten to the punch of publication by Vesalius by a full two years. So he started his work in 1539, but he didn't end up publishing until 1545. He could have been the first to have published an illustrated anatomy, but he wasn't. It didn't even help that Charles's brother Robert was a publisher, Charles ultimately declaring bankruptcy and dying in a debtor's prison. So there are these sort of sad uh, stories. At this time, Bologna boasted a faculty which included Hieronymus Girolamo Manfredi, 1430 to 1493, 
Alessandro Achillini, 1463 to 1512, Alessandro Benedetti, whom we've met before, and the Veronese Cerbi. Padua was equally competitive, if not more diverse, attracting Berengario, Andres de Laguna, 1499-1560, the Venetian Nicolas Massa, 1499-1569, the Florentine Antonio Benevieni, 1450-1502, Giovanni Battista Carano, 1515-1579, and Gunther, of course, who we've met, and uh, the other German, Dreander, 1500-1560, along with the hapless STM. So there were different faculties between these rivaling Bolognese and Paduan schools. Of all of these, perhaps only Alessandro Achillini made any new anatomical discoveries, mostly on the structure of the brain. Enter Vesalius and everything has changed, or so it would appear, according to Baldassar Hessler, who watched and chronicled the great man dissecting bodies in a Bolognese church in 1540. Hessler came from Lignitz in Silesia, now Lignitz in Poland, leaving behind a family of burgomasters and businessmen in order to study medicine at Goldberg under Valentin Friedland Trotzendorf. And he then moved to the University of Wittenberg, where he studied theology under Martin Luther. Hessler then moved to Leipzig and then ultimately Bologna for his medical studies, receiving his atrium at Medicina Doctoratus, on the 18th of September, 1540. Uh, he was able to see Vesalius dissecting and wrote a chronicle about it, and then he returned to Silesia, practising medicine as a town doctor in Zittau and ultimately in Breslau. Vesalius was anatomy's poster boy for the modern humanism, which extended into all fields of inquiry, if only in the search of each of the natural philosophies for the true and revealed word of God. But this poster boy turned into an annoying gadfly when those studying the humanities and the proto-sciences were rubbing shoulders so closely it seemed hard to imagine how vexatious and unpleasant an environment can become if one of the most junior tutors like Vesalius has it in his sights not only to overturn the accepted wisdoms, in this case Galenic wisdom, but to upend things so publicly. In his zeal learning Greek and Hebrew, Vesalius had taken it upon himself to dispel all of Galen's inconsistencies, and in so doing he incurred, as I've said before, the wrath of his mentor, Silvius, who actually waited eight long years after the release of the Fabrica to bring out his own book, a refutation of the slanders of a madman against the anatomy of Hippocrates and Galen. Vesalius was actually so distressed by his critics that a year after the Fabrica, he, he wrote his own riposte, which was called Epistle on the China Root, Epistola Rationem Modumque Propianindi Radices Chine, which was published in Basel in 1546. In this book, actually, uh, by Silvius, a refutation of the slanders of a madman against the anatomy of Hippocrates and Galen, an extraordinary title. Silvius defends the infallibility of his beloved Galen to the end, writing that those who opposed him were simply deranged. And in a play on words, Silvius even rather derogatorily calls his now famous student Vesalius 
avaya sami, which meant a madman. It's a kind of play on words. Silvius was so incensed with the philosophy, aggression, and the actual social prominence of Vesalius that he beseeched the emperor, Charles V, to deal with Vesalius as, quote, the worst example of ignorance, ingratitude, arrogance, and impiety, and to suppress him so that he may not poison the rest of Europe with his pestilential breath, unquote. Extraordinary. He goes on in this book about uh, a refutation of the calumnies of a certain madman, as I implore his majesty, the emperor, to punish severely as he deserves this monster born and reared in his own home, this most pernicious exemplar of ignorance, ingratitude, arrogance and impiety, with his deadly spume, he's already infected certain Frenchmen, Germans and Italians, but they, I believe, are ignorant of anatomy and of the other branches of medicine, unquote. So there was this tremendous hatred of Vesalius for introducing his new fabrica, which became the most famous anatomy book for the next 300 years. So who was this man Vesalius anyway? He was born in Brussels on New Year's Eve in 1514. He'd come from a medical dynasty which had been stretching back about four generations. His great-great-grandfather, Peter, was a contributor to a book called The Canon, which was a major medical text which combined all the known Greek and Arabic medicine at the time, and it was constructed as five volumes in the year 1025 and collated by the Persian physician Avicenna. The name Andreas Vesalius is the Latinized form of the Dutch Andries van Wiesel, with the family crest of three weasels on top of one another. And the names variably given in different texts and documents as Andrea Vesalius, Andrea Vesalio, Andres Vesal, Andre Vesalio, Andre Vesalio. There are a number of variations of these when one's looking at this kind of history. The city's backdrop had provided the stimulus for Vesalius's love of dissection, and when he wasn't, as a child, dismembering small animals that he'd captured along the city limits, he'd still parts of rotting bodies still hanging at the Gulgenberg Palace of Justice, close to his ancestral home. Gulgenberg's actually a, gen a sort of German generic term for Gallows Hill. It was expected that he would enter the family business, and at age 15 he registered at the University of Louvain, where in a very dynamic environment he befriended many luminaries, and where he acquired the disposition for the lifelong study and an abiding love of languages. Um, Peter van Wessel, Andreas Vesalius's great-great-grandfather, had been one of the founders of the Louvain University with another of its alumni, Erasmus, establishing the Collegium Trilingue ten years before, which provided an opportunity to study original texts in Greek, Latin and Hebrew, and Vesalius availed himself of that uh, opportunity. Uh, Vesalius wrote fluent Latin, and uh, he included a sizable amount of ancient Greek, Arabic and Hebrew terminology in his fabrica. In 1530, for example, four years before Vesalius had arrived at Louvain, its alumnus Gemma Frisius had produced with Gerard Mercator and Gaspar van der Hayden the first projections of a terrestrial globe, the so-called Mercator projections. 
and so it was an illustrious faculty. Mercator graduated from Vesalius's castle school in the same year as Vesalius, although a few months after him. And Frisius was also, as I've said, a close friend of Vesalius, had, had matriculated from Louvain in 1526 and went on to complete his medical degree in 1536, remaining on Louvain's medical staff until his death. So uh, it was an illustrious uh, alumnus. Um, the ambitious Vesalius moved to Paris in 1533, where he came under the influence of Gunther, who was busy translating Galen's entire opus, the De Anatomicus Administrationibus, the Anatomical Procedures, from Greek into Latin after the Faculty of Medicine there had just purchased a complete edition of all of Galen's known works. These were purchased by the University in 1526 and were published by Aldine Press in Venice, which was a little publishing house started in 1494 by Aldus Minucius, already known for publishing restored Greek literature, which included the works of Aristotle, Herodotus, Virgil, Sophocles, and Homer in Latin, and the contemporary writers Petrarchus, or Petrarch, Dante, and Castiglione in vernacular Italian. So the idea of the dissemination of this kind of knowledge meant that people needed to uh, be polyglots, to know multiple languages, and to have an understanding of the new output of the printing presses. Despite their interest in the text, the librarians of the university had no real understanding of the traditions of anatomy. The Parisians, for example, lagged very much behind the Bolognese and their Paduan cousins in the art of dissection. The first public dissection in Paris, for example, had to wait until 1493, and for all the boasting, the university was at the time far more invested in its linguistic faculty than in its anatomy demonstrations. And the only worthwhile project for Vesalius was, as I have said, in annotating Galen's work from the original, not in the hope really of discovering something new, but rather to impress his masters with his interpretative and flowery writing skills. And at best, the assignment for Vesalius when he arrived in Paris seemed pretty pedestrian. When he did arrive, uh, uh, he watched his teachers dissect and he was fairly shocked at their barbarism. He was equally unimpressed with the normal lecturing style uh, and he became a man of the people really by descending from the pulpit into the bear pit and dissecting the corpse himself to become professor, lector and distenser all in one. So all of these things were a logical extension of what he found and what his task was. Nobody had ever seen anyone do that before, doing active dissections like that and lecturing at the same time and it became an instant draw card for students far and wide, most of whom really liked it a lot. How the idea actually came to him is unknown, but it does seem a logical progression, and it must have seemed like really a revelation to his pupils, who were so used to long chants by the professors, who quote, according to Vesalius, squawk like jackdaws aloft in their high chair with egregious arrogance, croaking things they've never investigated, but merely committed to memory, from the books of others, unquote. Now, just that phrase alone can give you an impression of the man and how contemporaries and superiors around him might have responded to him. In truth, it could only have come about from someone like Vesalius, so completely immersed in his own self-importance. The historian Roy Porter quoted Vesalius as telling his students that, quote, 
I've done as much for medicine as Trajan did for the Roman Empire. Can you imagine somebody lecturing like that? Hippocrates, he said, has already staked out this path, but I've made it passable, unquote. Extraordinary quote. It comes from Roy Porter's The Greatest Benefit to Mankind, A Medical History of Humanity in 1998. In fairness, the move by Vesalius was a masterstroke, and his techniques would become adopted by every anatomist who came afterwards. But it's equally realistic to imagine that this one move, which democratised anatomy for the public, had also encouraged it towards becoming a spectacle. Despite the brash arrogance, Gunther entrusted him with a reworking of the library's new copy of Galen's opus. And although Gunther had thought Vesalius possessed an encyclopedic knowledge, he'd not anticipated the obsessive qualities in Vesalius that drove the younger man quite so much. Where were the small pores in the septum between the ventricles that Galen had written of permitting Congress of the Dark and the Rich Bloods? Where was the Reti Mirabilis, that delicate network of nutritive vessels draped across the base of the brain? In all of his dissections, Vesalius could find neither. Gunther would only acknowledge Vesalius' work grudgingly in the new translated book, and there was no mutual love lost between the men. Vesalius actually was reported as suggesting the only time Gunther had used a knife was at the dinner table. Despite the disparities between Galen and his own dissections, perhaps to assuage Gunther, Vesalius persisted with various Galenic myths, perpetuating mistakes in his second edition of the Fabrica, which came out in 1555, such as the multi-lober appearance of the liver, or that the sternum was split into seven separate parts, the presence of fanciful horns which were attached to the body of the uterus. By the time of the second edition of Galen's opus, was published by Gunther in 1538, Vesalius' fame as a dissector had grown and Gunther had to acknowledge him as a major contributor, uh, which he did. By comparison, Silvius was one of only a few anatomists in Paris who'd actually dissected a human being by the time Vesalius had arrived. Silvius was interesting. He actually started his life studying philosophy and only switched to medicine at 51 years of age, graduating from the University of Montpellier after studying Hippocrates and Galen in the original Greek and Latin. His belief in these writings was unshakable, and Vesalius found no sympathetic ear there either. The sides for and against Vesalius lined up dutifully, either in praise of Galen and therefore as an anti-Vesalian. The student Louis Vasset wrote of the Sylvian lecturing style that, quote, he had an astonishing power of enabling his students to grasp and see clearly that which a moment before had seemed impenetrable and terribly involved, unquote. Jean Riolin, 1577 to 1657, who is another one of Silvius's pupils, thought that Vesalius was a man of ingratitude. But even Vesalius's old nemesis, Estienne, had openly declared that Silvius was at best misguided, and at worst as a person, totally disagreeable. The debate between these two sides became acrimonious, and at the time of the second edition of the Fabrica, an ardent supporter of Vesalius, the Swiss anatomist Renatus Henner, tongue-in-cheek, wrote of the Sylvian opponents as Asini bipedis Silvani, two-legged Sylvian donkeys. This Galenic-Vesalian dispute actually continued long after both Sylvius and Vesalius, and many of the protagonists on both sides 
had died, Vesalius and his adherents perhaps having the last laugh, depicting their Galenic opponents in their writings and in their illustrations and book frontispieces as apes and orangutans. The Sylvian Vesalian dispute actually features in Edward Tyson's 1699 The Anatomy of a Pygmy, compared with that of a monkey, an ape and a man, Orangutan Sive Homo Silvestris, which was published in London, as I've said, in 1699. And it even goes out into the dispute of an image reported be, to be by Titian of the Laocoon, but only made up of uh, apes. And because of these disputes, the Vesalian appetite for dissection couldn't actually be satisfied. Unable to access enough corpses in Paris, he combed the Cimetière des Innocents on the city's outskirts and the gallows field at Montfaucon for his beloved bones. It actually enabled him to pull free whole skeletons only held together by their rotting ligaments, and he presented them to his Louvain students in 1536 as the first ever articulated skeleton for the purposes of anatomical study. He'd boiled down all the bones and then lined them up and pinned them together. And that hanging skeleton has become the defining symbol of anatomy halls, either in seriousness or in parody ever since, but it first came from Vesalius. The luxury of his position and that of his Professor Gunther was suddenly threatened when Charles V invaded France in 1536. If Vesalius had not already put Parisian noses out of joint, he now became even less welcome, and he was forced to return to Louvain. Arriving with trepidation, he was welcomed and almost immediately invited to conduct an autopsy on the young girl who had suddenly and unexpectedly died. Actually, the conclusions that she had died from excessive use of a tight corset, which was his diagnosis, were regarded as an astonishing revelation, causing the aristocracy to abandon the garment and leading to a teaching appointment at the university, which was confirmed by Professor Johannes Armenteriamus and by uh, a burgomaster, Adrian Blan. The decorum with which he actually dissected this girl's corpse was in complete contrast to the mutilation which a local barber surgeon had just performed on a previous um, uh, death, and this helped in part Vesalius to secure his reputation in the city. Whilst lecturing, he completed his baccalaureate, summarising and footnoting the Arabic medical text, the Ninth Book of Razas, which had been the inspiration for Vesalius to provide an entirely new terminology for anatomical structures. Actually, the same book had received a commentary by his grandfather, Everett, and the book was written by Abu Bakr Muhammad ibn Zakaria al-Razi, known as uh, uh, Razas, uh, in 865 AD. Part of the philosophy behind these commentaries, usually by those who did not read or write Arabic, was to actually falsely claim that the Arab writers had plagiarised or distorted the works of Galen. So his entire thesis and life was sort of caught up either with kind of verifying or refuting um, Galenic dogma. Um, as his first attempt at publication, which he called the Paraphrasis, a paraphrase of the Ninth Book of Razas, which came out in 1537, it didn't sell and actually proved an utter marketing failure. Disillusioned, Vesalius was lured to Padua, where he was actually appointed to the professorship of anatomy, so the legend goes, just shy 
of his 23rd birthday and on the very day that he graduated from medical school. So not a bad trick to become professor of anatomy at Padua on the same day that you graduate. It was an affair of pomp and ceremony presided over by the college prior Francesco Frigimelica, who directed each professor to sign the laureate of Doctor of Medicine. During his early tenure in Padua, Vesalius produced his second publication, six highly successful anatomical charts, the Table Anatomica Sex, as adjuncts to his lectures. These images were swiftly plagiarised, the copies proving more popular than the originals. The plates included maps of the arterial and venous system, the liver and the skeleton. Vesalius was actually furious when he saw a German edition edited by Jobst de Necker in 1539, a Cologne edition, and then a Strasbourg edition edited by Volta Reif in 1541. None of these pirated copies actually acknowledged him, with other copies also appearing at the same time in Marburg, Frankfurt, and also in Paris. Work remained a balance between dissection, teaching, travel and editing, and his new style became instantly famous, with him conducting hands-on dissections with student participation in Bologna and Pisa in what one might reasonably call the first anatomy workshops. By 1539, the boutique Junta Press had invited him to edit three of Galen's classic texts, the De Navorum, the Venara Martirarumque, and the De Anatomicis Administrationibus. In working on these projects with his English roommate John Caius, 1510-1573, who founded Gonville and Caius Colleges in Cambridge, it was hard to tell in Vesalius's amendments just how much of Galen's original text Vesalius had deleted or modified, and in fact, in frustration, Caius abandoned both the project and their friendship. The Junta Press had been divided uh, in uh, the Venice printers established by uh, Luca Antonio Giunti, uh, 1457-1538, and Filippo, 1450-1517, as well as Bernardo Giunti, 1487-1551, in Florence. The Venetian enterprise was more dedicated to liturgical texts, whereas the Florentine group published music. So this was not a, a usual uh, publication for the so-called Junta Press. So again, there was a lot of experimentation going on just in printing. As his fame grew, Vesalius's Galenic recapitulation in his didactic lessons gave way to an open forum of dissection and discussion, with no attempt either to prove or disprove Galenic tenets, and now no need to conceal his motivations. Almost every aspect of both his style and content were therefore revolutionary. Each of his larger lectures were radically accompanied by a handout print made from woodcuts, which were really the forerunners of lecture notes and cliff notes designed as study aids. By this time he felt sufficiently established to approach the artist Jan Stefan van Kalker, 1499-1546, a locally recognised Venetian artist who trained with the esteemed master Tiziano Vicelli, known as Titian, to take on the task of creating the most realistic images so far known in any anatomic textbook. Now, although he never acknowledged the artist by name, he knew that the imagery would be a principal factor in the success um, of any book. 
People have debated really about this artist for the fabric as suggesting that it's uncertain, although Vesalius had already collaborated with Van Kalka for his tabulae. In a 1539 letter on bloodletting, Vesalius wrote that he intended to undertake a larger work and wondered whether Van Kalka might be available to assist. However, there was never any reply to that letter. Others have suggested that the quality of the fabric or images is actually worlds away from those which appeared in the tabuli sex, and that such a prodigious artistic development by Van Kalka, who was already in his 40s, uh, over such a short period of time would have seemed unlikely. So there's still debate about who the artist is, some people even believing that the quality of the art is so good that it was Titian's work, although that's really the minority. Um, officials at the University of Padua were so intrigued by the prospect of the new book that they funded Vesalius for a year's sabbatical, and this uh, emboldened him to produce a text unlike any other, distinguishing him forever uh, by how much he departed from Galen. No other anatomist of the day was so differentiated, and it showed a bravery and an innovation, not only on his part, but also on that of his publishers, printers and engravers. He writes that the illustrations of the human parts will greatly delight those for whom there is not always a supply of human bodies for dissection, contending with surety that the most correct illustrations, no matter how spoiled they may be by engravers, would not deter his students from dissecting cadavers. There was still a need for them to confirm his findings, was the point he was trying to make, and he was certain that they would still remain enthusiastic to discover the human body for themselves, even if his arch-enemy, Silvius, had retorted satirically that Galen himself would never have resorted to using pictures. The book was published in German and Latin versions, with Vesalius also failing to acknowledge his faithful engravers. It was translated in 1553 into English by Thomas Geminus, 1510-1562, but with a Latin title, the Compendiosa Tortius Anatome de Lignatio. There were further translations in 1569 into Dutch and French, with Geminus in future editions plagiarising almost all of the original work without acknowledgement. This was the pattern of the day. According to Vesalius's biographer Charles O'Malley, even though the book was lauded for its images, Vesalius was particularly exasperated by the illustrators, and he, quote, put up with the bad temper of artists who made him more miserable than the bodies he was dissecting, unquote. He also didn't trust his local publishers, sending the text and the woodblocks on a treacherous journey by mule across the Alps to Johannes Operinus, uh, whose real name was Hans Herbst, in Basel. Operinus, like Vesalius, was fluent in Latin, Greek and Hebrew, but he was also a graduate in both law and medicine. An extraordinary fellow. For a short time he was imprisoned, actually, for publishing a Latin edition of the Koran, but was released after a direct appeal to Martin Luther for clemency. For some time the Fabrica was more than an anatomy text. It was a declaration of principles and a kind of vibrant autobiography. The chaotic scene depicted on its title page, which I might put on our uh, website, is enough to sense the pandemonium of a boisterous crowd at a public renaissance anatomisation. Its central figure, Vesalius, commands attention amid this bedlam, one might say unashamedly, with the delivery of his own version of a sermon on the mount. 
He captivates the throngs of onlookers by opening the abdomen of a woman, one hand peeling back her skin and abdominal wall like the pages of a book, the other a finger raised as measure of a divine connection. The room is symbolic, the powerful columns graced by the memento mori of a skeleton with representatives of past vivisections in the forms of a monkey and a dog. At the top of the picture is brandished the Vesalian crest with its three weasels. The shadowy figures of two men peer down from the gallery, the one on the left, perhaps the younger Van Kalka himself, and on the right, the older master, Titian. The attribution of the top gallery to the artists was actually advanced by Moritz Roth in his Andreas Vesalius Brusselensis of Berlin, 1892, and also by Marian Spielmann in the iconography of Andreas Vesalius, anatomist and physician, 1925. Vesalius actually made all the production and publication decisions himself, even though it was a task for which he was singularly unqualified. Many of his decisions actually turned out to be right. He opted for large woodblocks prepared from soft aromatic pearwood, for example, and that resulted in a very fine-grained textural appearance which allowed cutters to taper their incisions into the wood markings and produce more realistic and uniquely cast and shaded images. The original 273 woodblocks survived into the 20th century and they were used by Billy Vigand to print the Iconis Anatomica at his Bremer Press in 1935, describing them, quote, as though they'd just been cut today, unquote. Unfortunately, these blocks were destroyed in a bombing raid on Munich during World War II. So even the type of woodblock that's used is of some interest. It's also no surprise that the start of the Salius's Fabrica shows a woodcut of the great man himself, coyly eyeing his audience with an expression of knowing certainty. It's a significant, uh, it is significant that he holds a partially dissected arm, his thumb and index finger, splaying open the cadaverous palm to show the tendons decussating around one another. This choice to include him in profile, which I'll add to the website, revealing the mechanics of the hand with its most elegant pulleys of tendons and flesh, would never be the start of any anatomization, and the orientation of the picture would have meant that the cadaver would have been hitched into an upright position. Both situations would have been unlikely, and hence the picture is symbolic and staged. But symbolism aside, the choice of him in front of a dissected hand is inspired. For all his discordance with Galen, Vesalius could still agree, along with Anaxagoras and Aristotle, that the hand was simply one of the most divine pieces of creation. Some Greeks may have compared it as a homologue with a common claw or the talon of a predator or to a herbivore's hoof. But to Vesalius, the human hand was the distinguishing intellectual gift to mankind, not to make him more intelligent, but because of his intelligence. Vesalius wrote of the hand that, quote, it was due to the marvellous labour of the supreme creator of the world. If you look at it in the rest of the body, the other corporeal option that displays such divine design could be the eye, but it never caught on as an alternative representative, largely because it's so difficult to iconically illustrate. The wax modeler uh, Anna Morandi Mansolini from Bologna, for example, 1714 to 1774, 
did, however, centre her anatomy presentations around the five senses and included special presentations of the eye and its movements, which you can still see at the Palazzo Poggi. Uh, Charles Bell, for example, also wrote his particular book, The Hand, Its Mechanism and Vital Endowments as Evincing Design. These were evidences the anatomists thought of intelligent design. Knowing this, what we know about Vesalius, and returning again to that likeness of him holding the open hand and looking out to the audience, he seems now to possess that kind of cool smugness of someone both with the commanding knowledge and who's also the keeper of secrets. The editions of the fabric also include beautifully illustrated initial letters, what are called historic, uh, historiated initials, some of which show his assistants taking down a body from the gallows while others transport corpses to the section rooms and prepare or dissect decapitated heads. These little historiated initials are absolutely fascinating to look at. In the introduction to the first edition, he lustily describes his own body-snatching prowess nightly trawling the cimetière. But by 1555, of the second edition, this kind of foolhardy braggadocio has disappeared. After publishing The Fabrica, Vesalius made some dubious life decisions that, had he chosen otherwise, might have altered the course of the history of anatomy. His became a story of waste, separated from his academic life and unable to progress. Like his father and his grandfather before him, he moved to court, accepting a minor role for the emperor as medicus familiaris ordinarius, a regular physician responsible for the care of his courtesans, but subordinate to those who advised Emperor Charles himself. He was far more revered outside of the court, travelling to Pisa intermittently to perform autopsies. In this endeavour, he had been so impressive that their Duke Cosimo unsuccessfully petitioned Charles for Vesalius to remain in Pisa as their new professor of anatomy. Somewhere in amongst this work, Vesalius, unable to perform much dissection outside of occasional request and disconnected from his colleagues and academic congress, became distraught at the criticisms he'd heard of his book The Fabrica, and he impulsively decided to burn all of his books, drawings and papers. It was clearly a rash decision, and his writings afterwards bear the testimony of his regret. From then on, despite a lack of battlefield experience, he joined the military surgeon Daza Chacon Dionisio, 1510-1596, operating on the wounded throughout Charles's campaigns in the Champagne-Ardennes and becoming highly proficient in the management of complex injuries and their infective aftermath. Restored in mind and activity, by 1555, Vesalius had made nearly a thousand revisions for a second edition of the Fabrica and showed interest in regaining his old chair of anatomy at the University of Padua, which was currently occupied by his student, Gabriel Fallopio. Fallopio is known as Fallopius. He was actually very highly gifted. He'd been appointed Professor of Anatomy at Ferrara at the age of 26, making important contributions to the anatomy of the inner ear and the tear ducts, as well as to the basic anatomy of the female internal reproductive organs. This is where the fallopian tube comes from. 
The letters between the men had been cordial. Fallopio's 1561 Observaciones Anatomicae, paying personal and great respect to Vesalius, although including in a somewhat understated fashion all of Fallopio's latest anatomical findings. But Fallopio drops his respect in the preface lamenting that his teacher Vesalius, quote, often carps at and accuses Galen in a manner unfitting an anatomist, unquote. Again, this Galenic dispute. The 1564 reply by Vesalius, uh, again, it's two years almost later, by Vesalius ignored his pupil's rebukes and arrived in essay form directed to Fallopio as the Anatomicarum Gabrielis Fallopiae Observationum Examinum more simply known as the examine. And in it, Vesalius grumbles about his unhappiness in the Spanish court. He bemoans the fact that he was unable to find, let alone dissect any cadavers, and he openly announces his determination to return to Padua, writing of his desire to provide a monumental new text which will synthesise the known Vesalian anatomy with current medical practice. But it was not to be. The final chapter for Vesalius is obscure, tragic and mired in rumour. From a letter attributed to a Parisian diplomat, Hubert Longuet, 1518-1581, writing 60 years after the purported event, Vesalius was accused of beginning an autopsy on a Spanish nobleman whose heart was reputed to be still beating when the chest incision was made. The family seeking retribution invited the Inquisition to attend on a charge far more serious than murder, namely one of impiety. If this event did occur, however, there's no report of it in the Inquisition's records of their performance of auto de fe, the notated ritual of penance conducted for any convicted heretic, which could include a mass, communal prayer, a public procession and a formal reading of a sentence before either an execution or an acquittal. Why too would an obscure diplomat be in possession of such a letter? Nor was this document part of the inventory of Longay's estate after his death. It's not inconceivable that one of Vesalius's rivals had started this rumour, but for Vesalius, threats of this nature would have appeared very real indeed. Spain was a puritanical nation where international qualifications were not even recognised unless they'd been undertaken in an approved Catholic institution. Whilst there was a stricter sense of Galenism in Spain, the Spaniards lagged well behind the Italians, not only in their dissecting tradition, but also in the courtesy they afforded renowned anatomists, and consequently in their overall spirit of anatomical inquiry. Whatever precisely happened, Vesalius left Spain in a hurry, with his wife and daughter in tow, passing through Perpignan on his way to a journey to the holy city Jerusalem. Some have suggested that Philip II himself had intervened over the penalty of death to reprieve Vesalius, who now chastened, could undergo penance by pilgrimage. Perhaps more likely Vesalius had used his trip to suggest a personal crisis that may potentially have released him from the boredom and rigidity of the Spanish court, and which would have allowed him the opportunity to seek once more his old post back in Padua. Add to this the news that his rival, Fallopius, was gravely ill, and it would have ignited the idea in his mind that there was a real chance to rekindle his old life. But tragedy was to befall, and as his ship sailed into the Adriatic on its way back from Jerusalem, it was buffeted 
by an unseasonable storm that lashed at the vessel for 30 days. The ship limped into the Ionian Sea and made harbour on the Isle of Zante, now Zakynthos, just short of the Peloponnese mainland. And there it is written that as a castaway, Vesalius starved to death.